Open your Bibles, if you would, to Joel chapter 2. And uh, it's a bit of a lengthy passage, but I want to read through verse 27 in Joel chapter 2 so that we get the, the flavor and the, and the big picture. Beginning in verse 1 of Joel chapter 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. They each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path when they burst through the defenses. They do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and let the bride and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them sp- say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they, they among the peoples say, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and he will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things." Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. 
The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. And then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. I wanted to read the length of this passage so that we could grasp the fullness of the picture that Joel was proclaiming to God's people. Joel's message is a constant call to God's people, to all of God's people. And even though we're only looking at it in pieces, I would challenge you to sit and in your Bible sometime in these coming days just to read through the brief few pages and catch a glimpse of the message as a whole. And one of the things we can draw from this, as was mentioned in chapter 1, that the call to repentance went out to all generations, so too in chapter 2, it says to all inhabitants. In chapter 2, the Bible tells us that we're to gather the people, we're to sanctify the congregation, we're to assemble the elders, we're to gather children and nursing infants. I mean, God's not leaving anyone out on this call to repentance, even that which would culturally seem excusable. And this is important because in verse 16, God mentions, let the bridegroom come out of his chamber and the bride out of her room. And that's important because according to the law, someone who was getting married was excused from service to God. They were excused from serving in the military of Israel. And so Joel is reaching not only beyond all of these age groups and people groups that he mentions, but he says even those culturally and who would rightfully have an excuse Tell them to turn and come out. That's the seriousness of this call to repentance. And in this call, once again, we look at history. Because twice in chapter 2, Joel mentions blowing the trumpets. Blowing the trumpets. This call to blow the trumpets in the midst of pending destruction. Those first 10 verses of chapter 2 picture an army that was to come from the north and you can see how their discipline and how their power and how they're unstoppable in the description that the scripture portrays in these first 10 verses of Joel chapter 2 and in blowing this trumpet it's a trumpet to call the people into a solemn assembly and it's to call them into this solemn assembly that they might gather before God. See, Joel's audience would have connected this trumpet with exactly what he defines in the second time that he says to blow this trumpet. You'll have to go back and read Numbers chapter 10 in the Law of Moses, where the different reasons for blowing the trumpet and the different results of how many trumpet blasts were blown would call the people together. When they were wandering in the wilderness, it's mentioned in Numbers chapter 10. There were trumpet calls that would call the people to the very doorway of the tent of meeting so that they would gather with God. There were trumpet blasts that 
as the Israelites were set out in their encampments around the synagogue, that according to the trumpet blast, that would be the order in which they would pack up and get ready to move. And, and you see all these descriptions in Numbers chapter 10. There's a description of blowing the trumpet at the first of each month over the offerings that are being offered to God so that Israel would be reminded that the Lord is your God. So in the history of all of the mentions of trumpet blasts in Numbers chapter 10, I believe it's easy to see as Joel describes in this specific instruction that's given here that this was not a call to arms in fighting this army that was coming because the army was God's army. It was an army that God was going to use as our history in the Old Testament shows us, as God used the Assyrians as part of his judgment against the northern tribes. And he used the Babylonians as part of his judgment against the southern tribes. So too, Joel here is painting again this picture that because of their sin and because of their disobedience, God would direct an army to come. But here's our assurance. Here's their assurance as verse 11 makes clear that the Lord utters his voice before his army and surely his camp is very great. Strong is he who carries out his word, that is, God's word. See, none of those invading armies had power beyond what God was directing them to do in being used as instruments to turn his people back to himself. And so too, Joel is making that call here. As he says, blow the trumpet. Don't blow the trumpet to get in battle array. Don't blow the trumpet to pick up and move. Blow the trumpet for a solemn assembly, as it says in verse 15. Blow a trumpet in Zion, and then do what? Consecrate a fast and proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people, and it's all those people, as we had mentioned just a few moments ago. And there could be no other understanding of Joel's audience than that this was a direct call from God to his people to come and meet with him. To come and gather before him. To come and hear from him. To come and get right with him. You know, we have alarms on our phones. We have calendars on our phones. We have email notifications sent to us. We have all these electronic calendars so we don't miss out on appointments that we're supposed to make. Folks, let me tell you, for far too long, we've missed out on the call of God to gather before him and seek him in repentance. And that's why Joel was saying, look, sound the trumpet. The trumpet would go beyond. What would keep anyone from hearing? And in this pending judgment that Joel was warning about, he was making certain that God's people knew there is a call to repentance. And let me tell you about this call to repentance. You see it over and over again in Scripture, that this call to repentance from God is just as constant in his character as the description of his mercy and his grace and his compassion, and how slow he is to get angry, and how he is loving. 
Folks, the two go hand in hand. It's God's character. Because he is slow to anger. Because he is merciful. Because he is loving. That he would call his people to confess their sin and to gather before him and be renewed and be restored. There's not a loving parent here that would not do the same for their children. And if you have children of any age, you realize you've had to do it over and over and over and over again. And that's just a small glimpse of God's love as it relates to his call of repentance. And let me make this clear. I don't know why, but in the last few months I've been asked this question a number of times. This is the God of the Old Testament. He's loving, he's slow to anger, he's merciful, and he's gracious. And he calls people to repent. Why do I make that emphasis? Because the question I've gotten the last, I don't know how many times in the last few months, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? He's the same He's just as loving. He's just as gracious. He's just as merciful. Folks, this was centuries before Christ came. And you hear the proclamation of God's spokesman, Joel, saying, He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He's merciful. And He's gracious. If you think the destruction in judgment that God called for in the Old Testament somehow makes him different, then you don't understand what Christ did on the cross. Hear me, folks. You can compile everything that looks bad to you that would be credited to God in the Old Testament, and it doesn't hold a candle to the wrath of God that Jesus Christ took on Calvary's cross. How dare we think we have some grasp on the greatness of God. But I can stand here before you and say it with certainty, just as the prophet said it centuries before Christ. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He's merciful. And oh, you should be so glad. You should be thrilled. Your soul should be doing cartwheels hearing of the grace of God. And the reason God is the same is because not only because God never changes, but he, as he was trying to do centuries before Christ, was making himself known among his people so that he would be known among the nations. Not only has God not changed, his plan hasn't changed. God is all about revealing God And he wants to use his people to do it. God is the creator. God is rightfully the judge. And God rightfully redeems and restores for his glory. God is sovereign. Even over the enemies of his people. As we mentioned already, history shows us that he used those who were enemies of his people to be used to draw his people into repentance. And while some may question God, and while some may want to say, well, 
What kind of character does that give? You know, Joel mentions it here. Joel says, <laughs> don't make for yourself, don't make your inheritance a reproach or a byword among the nations. Why should people say among the people, where is their God? Folks, you can let someone question God all they want. Shame on you if you question God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. But let me tell you what God's not worried about from your questions or anybody else's questions, and that's his reputation. We don't understand that because we're all about reputation. If you don't believe me, get on any avenue of social media. See, we're all concerned about what so-and-so likes or doesn't like about me. We're all concerned about what so-and-so says or thinks about me. God is not concerned at all. You know why? Because God never changes. You know, so-and-so may be correct when they say that about you. In spite of what you think it does to your reputation. God's not concerned what other people say about him. God's concerned about his people repenting and then revealing to others. So when other people say, man, that guy used to be a dirty, rotten scoundrel, and it looks like he's got something different now. Yeah, God saved him. And you're right that he used to be a dirty, rotten scoundrel. And you know what? For most of us, we still are. Why would we ever be concerned about our reputation when it's in comparison to God. Because God's not. God's not. God will never be a reproach. In spite of the people who would say. And question. Why God would do what he's doing. Brothers and sisters. Let me encourage you. That we stop questioning God's methods. And get in line with God's message. We all want to somehow figure out God. Let me tell you, it ain't going to happen. You know, scientists say we use between 8 to 12% of our gray matter. You can use all 100% of it. You ain't going to come close to scratching the surface of God. And so, instead of being so focused on God's method... I trust that today we'll hear his message. And his message is this. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Hear this. This is God's message. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. That's the message. That's the message Joel delivered centuries before Christ, and it's the message that God still proclaims today through Christ. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart. And rend your heart, tear your heart, not your garments. What more could one ask for from a holy God who rightfully is to judge sin? That was Joel's desire for his people, that they not harden their hearts 
but they, they hear this message from God. And folks, as we mentioned when we talked about Joel 1, sin, judgment, repentance, and deliverance, it just is a continuous cycle throughout human history. I challenge you to show me otherwise, especially among the people of God. So repent and turn to God. Yes, the God of the Old Testament, the God who is gracious, the God who is compassionate, the God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You'll find all those qualities in God even before the New Testament. God, though, because he is all of that and a whole lot more, God made sure that those who hear his call of repentance know what true repentance looks like. See, it's easy to say, I got a message. It's not so easy to be clear on just exactly how that message is to be carried out. Maybe this has happened in your classroom, students or teachers. Maybe this has happened at your workplace, or maybe this has happened in your home. Someone says something, and what people do as a result of that being said is 30 different things. Uh, When I was growing up, we called it the telephone game. You know, you'd sit in a circle, and the first person would whisper something into the ear of the person next to them, and they would whisper it. And by the time it got all the way around to the end, you found yourself going, what? (laughs) And the people in the middle would say, what? And the person at the beginning would say, that's not what I said. God makes it clear through the prophet Joel, not only the call to repentance, but to know. You can know of true repentance. And here's what it looks like. And the prophet mentions that, especially in those last eight or nine verses in contrast to those first ten verses. You know, those first ten verses that presented this army that would come in great destruction and in judgment. God, in those last few verses that we read, talks about how there will be restoration. The the pastures that were destroyed would once once again be green. And God promises this restoration. But there's a process. Or I should say there's a result between repentance and restoration. And it's a response of the heart to the grace, mercy, and love of God. And it's seen very clearly there in verses 18 and 19. Not only does the language in its original text change. But verse 18 and 19 say... Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to... And then it talks about the new wine and the new oil and the new grain. And it says, You'll be satisfied in full, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. It's easy to see that in the history of Israel and specifically Judah itself. It's easy to see that in its historical context. But what was God making clear? God was making clear that his jealous love for his people is to be received and understood 
in its fullness. Catch this. If you're a parent here today, if you're a grandparent here today, maybe you're not married, but you're in a dating relationship here today, or maybe you're not married and not in a dating relationship, but you're in a waiting to have a relationship. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Here's what I see among all human beings. They want, we want to express our love. And we want to do it in a way that the object of our love is fully ready to understand it and receive it. Guys, have you ever given, maybe when you were dating, or if you're married, I hope you still do this. I'm a little bit behind the curve. I still don't always catch up the way I should. But you want to express love to your girlfriend or to your wife. And maybe you get her a gift. And the look on her face is, oh. (laughs) I can tell some of you guys, and unfortunately more of you women know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, that doesn't undo the love, but maybe you saved and you planned and you gave it a whole lot of thought and you just figured this is going to wow her like nothing else. And boy, did she go, wow. (laughs) And that's from somebody who's been married almost 70 years. So it sounds like this illustration works. But it's an illustration of what verse 18 tells us about God. God's zeal. And is so jealous that his zeal drives him to make certain that his people know how much he loves them. And that they are the object of that love. And that in that love, he calls them to repent. In that love, God expresses As God knows best. See, guys, a lot of times we don't know best the way to express our love. Now I got more women laughing. But ladies, give us a break. We we do put some effort into it sometime. I'm not going to say all the time. Sometime. But see, our battle today, our battle today is putting ourselves in a place where not only we fully understand God's zeal for us in knowing of his grace and mercy and love and that he's slow to anger and that he wants us to repent. But our victory today, unlike those who, with God's work tied to their land, they were an agricultural society and, and tied to the productivity of their fruit and their animals. See, Our issue today, our turmoil today, is with fear and shame. Too many of us who claim to be God's children live in fear and in shame. And do you realize that God speaks specifically to that more than once in this chapter, in these verses that we read? Just as he more than once blew the trumpet or called for a trumpet blast, For people to gather in repentance. So too in true repentance. We'll not only know the love of God. 
but we'll know it in a way that will impact our hearts. See, in that physical sense, they would show sorrow or mourning or repentance by literally tearing their clothes. And that was a sign to everyone around them, hey, I'm really in mourning here. But let me tell you what true repentance looks like for us today. Business no longer goes on as usual. See, we claim to know God's love, mercy, and grace, and yet we continue to live like we've always lived. Why do we not trust God's love, mercy, and grace? And why do we continue to allow the enemy and other human beings to keep us in this shame and in this fear of sin that we've committed? Look, the issue isn't that I've committed no sin. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fall short. Can we just get that off the table? We're all guilty before God. What's the issue? When I know that God is a God of mercy, love, and grace, slow to anger, I live in repentance. I live in coming to Him regularly. I live by the Holy Spirit blowing that trumpet in my heart, as it were, to call me back to a gathering before God Almighty that I might hear and know of Him. God says through the prophet Joel, Thus you will know I am in your midst. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And God says today, repent. Repent from the fear and the shame that you live in. Because that sin's been dealt with. If you've repented. If not, perhaps God is saying to you today, you need to repent so we can deal with that. Because unrepentant sin will keep you in fear and shame as well. But the victory is in no longer living in the fear and the shame. You know, we said, let's get the issue of all of us are sinners off the table. Let's get the issue off the table of that sin's already been dealt with at Christ's cross. And so what's the result? What does true repentance look, look like? And so we must even repent from allowing the enemy to keep us held in prison, as it were, in regards to sin. Folks, to not live in repentance and to be a child of God is to doubt who God is and what God has done. That's what your life is saying if you're living your life that way. See, we don't experience the fullness of repentance because we don't trust in the completeness of Christ's victory on the cross. I, I mean, if you truly believe what the Bible says about what Christ accomplished at the cross, why would there be any more fear and shame of confessed and repented sin? Not a biblical reason. In fact, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the 
uh, from the spirit of sin and death. From the law of sin and death, excuse me. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There's a freedom in repentance. And in that freedom, we no longer need live in fear or shame. Even when the Holy Spirit convicts us and we know there's sin we need to confess and repent of, there's no reason to fear. God's already taken care of it. That's why Christ died on the cross. And we come back to that life of repentance in victory, knowing that if I'm in Christ, there is therefore now no more condemnation. Hallelujah. Repent. Repent from the fear and shame of maybe sin that you've confessed, but you're somehow shortchanging the ability of God to forgive you. Repent if there's sin in your life, brothers and sisters, that you know is not right and you haven't confessed it and turned from it. Repent. Blow the trumpet. Sound the alarm. Gather before a holy God in turning from your sin. In just a moment, we're going to pray a corporate prayer of confession. And in that corporate prayer, as a preparation for taking our communion, I trust that God would turn your heart, that your heart would be turned. Folks, it's not the external tearing of the clothes. Because you know what? Anyone can come in here and sit in this room at the same time you and I are here in this room. And if they can read, they can sing the songs. And if they want, they can put money in the offering. They can even partake of the bread and the cup. That's not what saves you. That's not a life of repentance. That's a life of just going through the motion. See, that was the whole thing the prophet Joel was trying to get God's people to understand. Stop going through the motion. Stop just tearing your clothes. On the outside, anyone could tear their clothes or do what we do or say what we say. It's the broken heart. It's the changed heart. It's the no more business as usual. Because I'm living in the repentance that God has called me to. Would you bow your head and close your eyes?